the whole jockey, not the horse. It's like you can have an okay idea, but if you're a really good founder, you'll find a way to make it work. In most cases, founders have to pivot their company. I don't get so wedded on the idea. It's the team. Welcome to Wisdom, Wealth, and Wellness, a podcast on overcoming behavioral biases and blind spots. Sponsored by Satofsky Asset Management, and this is Jonathan Satofsky. Today, I am so fired up. I have a dear friend of mine who is just a powerhouse in every area of life. Lorraine Pendleton is just, the description isn't going to do it justice, but I'll try anyway and say she's a seasoned early stage VC investor, global public speaker, board member, business development executive, former attorney with experience in legal technology, media, entertainment. She's investment partner at Portfolio Rising America Fund 1 and 2, where she's invested in uh, over 30 companies in entertainment, media, consumer, health, tech, ed tech space, including Madison Reed, Canela Media, Maven. Her career began uh, a decade ago, first as an angel investor, now as a VC. She's the founder, managing partner of 125 Ventures, a new early stage uh, venture fund investing in media, entertainment, sports startups at the intersection of tech. More importantly, she's been my chair for a number of years at Tiger 21, as well as an angel investor who invests in and advises women in diverse-led companies. She was named uh, by Worth as one of the 16 financial powerhouses. So it's not just me. I'll be 17 of that list. But by Maria Claire as one of the 50 most connected women in America and by Business Insider as the one of 22 female angel investors every startup founder should know. Wow. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So uh, I, there's so much to talk about, but l- let me start with the idea of, you know, I, this concept of this podcast around wisdom, wealth, and wellness. But you talk about the idea that less than 1% of VCs money went to black founders. And that's sort of what inspired you to become an angel investor. Yeah. So that... Yeah, a decade ago, I heard that stat. Actually, it's now 1%. So we've moved a little bit, not as much as we should have or should be moving. But yeah, that's what inspired me. I heard that. I was watching a television show about you know Black founders who were in an accelerated program, and they made that stat. And I had not, I didn't know that. And I did research and found out that was, in fact, true. And I said, I want to change that. And I put that out in the universe. I didn't know how to do it, but I put that in the universe. And the universe conspired me and uh, I learned about a program called Pipeline Angels, which trains women to become angel investors. I, I applied and then I got in and that was a decade ago and that launched my investing career. That's awesome. And you know what? Uh, before that, uh, you and I have something in common. I don't think we ever talked about this, but when, when you attended Brown, you were a radio DJ at school station. Yeah. I happened to be a radio DJ at uh, the University of Michigan. Oh, uh, I didn't know quite, that. Quite okay. a few years ago. But I had the 3, <laughs> 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift on Friday night. So Ooh. I brought the whole entourage with me. We talked sports. We talked, you know, what was going on in, uh, at the university. So it was, it, was, uh, it was a treat. But anyway, but that brought you to, you end up going to NYU Law, and then you represented some amazing, you had such a fascinating early career, totally outside of VC world. Totally. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously people love talking about celebrities, and you had such extensive experience with some amazing people, notorious B.I.G., Prince. Shaka Khan, Stevie Wonder, you know, talk about that a little bit. Tell us 
I would just, I just am so fascinated with it. So you mentioned Brown. I, you know, I was a DJ at Brown and that inspired me actually after graduating to go into entertainment. I worked at Blue Note Records, which is Capitol Records jazz label. Went to go work for a couple other record labels, uh, Priority Records, Profile, which did mainly hip hop artists. And then I landed at William Morris Agency, which is now William Morris Endeavor. And um, as I was going to law school, I went evening and I, you know, kept my entertainment contacts. And then I worked for a gentleman named Londa McMillan. And he's best known for getting Prince out of his agreement with Warner Brothers. And so mm. once he got him out of his agreement, Warner Brothers, he actually brought in Prince as a client. He launched his own law firm. And uh, I was fortunate to work with him for a number of years. It was a small entertainment boutique. But like you mentioned, we represented some big artists. And so Prince was you know, actually all the artists that we represented, particularly like Prince, Shock and Con, Stevie Wonder. I grew up listening to them. So I had to pinch myself when I got to work for this law firm in Londell and we're representing these incredible artists. It was just really an amazing opportunity for me. But I learned a lot from him because he was a young lawyer, a young black lawyer, African-American lawyer. Um, He actually left his firm because they didn't make him a partner, although he brought in Prince as a client and he had the courage to go out on his own. And he actually asked Prince, will you join my, if I create a law firm, will you join me? And Prince said, absolutely. And so he launched a law firm with Prince as his first client, not too shabby, but he taught me and just observing him is just, if you believe in something and just having the confidence and just going for it, you know, half of life is like showing up and and doing things. And I learned a lot from him. Yeah. To this day, he's an, he's an inspiration. We spoke about six months ago. Um, and he's just, yeah, he's my mentor and has been an inspiration on what, what the possible can be. And he's since has gone on he bought the Source magazine, which is like kind of the Bible for, you know, hip hop. And he's been running that really well and um, some other business of, business ventures. And he's now managing um, Prince's estate on behalf of Prince's uh, two sisters. I know this is tangential, but I heard that if they released everything from from his archives that he recorded, it would basically release a new song every day for the next, I don't know, hundred 200. Yeah. I mean, he has such a vast Prolific. inventory that people haven't even heard. Uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's he, quite an amazing venture yeah. in its own right, right? And they're actually putting out, I think it's pre-release, but they're doing like a whole like multiple vinyl set, so which is pretty cool. So so for people who still have their, you know, uh, what do you even call them? Record players, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was pretty prolific. He would write two to three songs per day. He had a vault where he kept his music. Definitely a prolific artist. Did you learn anything? Uh, this is also uh, something interesting I heard about habits. I heard Stevie Wonder put an egg timer on every day and tried to write a song in the time that the egg timer, till it, you know, till it beeped. And if he didn't, he'd go meander on his day and he'd do it again in the afternoon. I wonder if there... If, if you observe that or other habits of other artists about discipline and things that you've been able to take and extract for your own career. I didn't know that about Stevie Wonder. I'll have to ask Londell about that. But I know Prince recorded several songs per day. What I observed actually working for Londell, he's a very disciplined person. He always says no one outworks him. He's a hard worker. He would be in the office early in the morning until... As you can imagine, we had artists, they would be in the recording studio. He would go see them or we'd go see them. You know, he's not going to bed until two, three in the morning and he's back up at it again. And he works on the weekends. And, you know, I learned a lot from him, you know, just having that. He had a strong work ethic, um, still does. And I think a lot of it is, you know, having a strong work ethic in life. And, you know, not everything's going to go your way. But I think I do believe like it's sometimes 
and I've seen it just going, showing up. A lot of people don't even show up. And I've been in situations where it's like, ah, oh, it's like the end of the day. I'm tired. I got invited to an event and I go to an event and I meet some incredible people um, in that, you know, are helping me or can help me with my fund. And it's just because I showed up and, you know, and sometimes you just have to, you know, you have to have a balance, of course, work-life balance, you know, wellness is important, but sometimes it's just, you know, being consistent and showing up. I, I think I learned both of those things from Londell. And then of course the artists we have, we had some incredible artists, um, you know, but that was, that was a really amazing chapter in my life, you know? Okay. You're having a successful learning from an amazing mentor had like exposed to some of your childhood, you know, wow. The, I've been listening to all these artists my whole life and, and, and I'm going to leave this whole world. I'm going to go to a completely foreign world into the internet in its infancy in, in the convergence of, of, and, and you had the foresight to see the convergence of media and entertainment. How did you know where things were headed? What, what was the vision that, you know, inspired that instinct, you know, analysis, like what, what caused you to, you know, follow your gut and, and, and pursue that complete, not even, it's not 360 degree shift, but complete transformation. You know, actually it wasn't a complete transformation because I don't know if you know this though, but um, I actually, when I was at Brown, I, I did computer science. I was actually two classes short of my CS degree, computer science oh, wow. degree. So I majored in economics, but my dad, who's a computer engineer, he brought home the IBM personal, their very first personal computer. And oh, wow. I remember he brought it in and I started coding at the age of I think 13 or 14 he put me in computer classes and I coded basics. I'm dating myself. It doesn't even exist now. So I was always comfortable with technology. And when I got to Brown, I did computer science or programs, all of that. So what happened, what I saw, what was happening was the internet and MP3. So MP3, again, dating myself, but you know, it was a way before you had streaming and um, you know, you can download songs. They were one of the first ones and, you know, they were doing some things where they were taking, you know, IP from artists, but it was definitely something to take a look at in terms of digital songs and people having access digitally to music and that had mm. never happened. And so I just became really intrigued with that and, you know, just kind of was reading about it. And then also at that time, I mentioned Londo got Prince Adam's Agreement, Warner Brothers, which he was best known for. And then at that time, Prince was an independent artist and Prince was putting out his own music. Again, this is like the embassy of websites. And I was doing, you know, as representing him, looking at, you know, website designers because he was putting out his own, you know, website. You could order his albums. And so I just saw like that was see, I was seeing this convergence of, you know, you have this artist um, and now he's going to be putting out his own music on the Internet, you know, CD box set. He's basically bypassed the record label. And, you know, then MP3 is that technology was out. And just I saw that this is here to stay and something big going to happen with this. I didn't know what it was, but I just, you know, had the foresight to see that. And so I left, you know, I left much the chagrin of a lot of people left law firm world. And I joined an internet startup company, an Israeli company that had an amazing technology that they were licensing to entertainment media companies. And that's why they were drawn to me because of my contacts. Again, that was like a risk I took. Um, you know, we had backing from GE Ventures we were, I tell people, this was my first lesson in product market fit because we had a great product. Unfortunately, we didn't, the market wasn't quite there. Now it is. It's like, 
personalization technology. So when you buy something from Amazon, they said, you know, you'll probably like these things. But that's what we were doing. But we were mm. way ahead of our time. So this was like in the early 2000s. Mm. And um, so we folded. And so I was at a crossroads. So I go back to entertainment law or, or being a lawyer again, or do I continue on this internet path? And I continue the ladder on the internet path. I joined a company, Community Connect, best known for different websites, Black Planet, Asian Avenue, Mahente. We were the first, just a fun fact, we were the first social network company to get over a million registered users with Black Planet. And we went on mm. to have about 25 million um, across our three different web properties. This was way before Facebook wasn't even around. I was doing business development, getting advertisers who wanted to reach those markets we had. And that company was sold. And then I joined another company, Select Minds, which was a B2B you know, SaaS company. And that was sold to Oracle. And I was like employed number seven, I think, at that company. Amazing. Just really just a lot of guts to just keep pushing forward and learn from every experience and grow. It's it's impressive. You know, I, I heard you mention something, the difference between mentors and sponsors. And, I, and I'm just curious as to, as you talk about Londell and the people that you've met and each experience leading to the next, how you how you frame that not just for yourself but for other 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 people that are developing in their career how they seek out the right support system or it just accidentally happens you know what what's your what's your take on that for yourself and 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 for the benefit of others i've been fortunate to have you know mentors now sponsors as i embark on this whole the past you know well five years the venture fund um, you know, I think mentors are really important. I think I get emails a lot. Will you mentor me? You know, unfortunately I don't have the bandwidth, but what I would say for people who are seeking mentors, you know, someone told me once you should also be giving to the mentor as well. So it's not just the one way you're taking, it should be a give and take. What I would say is reach out to people and what can you provide them? And that really makes you stand out because you're probably reaching out to someone who is incredibly busy. And so just be cognizant of that. And But I do think mentors are really important. Um, sponsors are a whole other level of mentor. And when I, you know, I worked in law firms after, you know, the whole internet startup, I went to go work at big global law firms. It was just interesting. I wasn't practicing. I was doing business development executive, working with partners, but I saw a lot of associates who were on their partner track. You know, they, that's like the, the holy grail to get to partner. You make a lot more money. It's just like, it's prestigious. And it was just interesting to see the associates who made partner and the ones who didn't. And a lot of it was having a sponsor. So they had the mentor, but they had a sponsor. And I define sponsor. And to me, as someone who's going to say your name in a room and you're not in that room is going to advocate for you. And so the question is, are there going to be people who are going to do that? Realistically, I mean, I would see, like I mentioned, the law firm, which doesn't have a lot of women, not a lot of people of color. And, you know, a lot of them didn't have a sponsor. And so they ended up leaving, going to another law firm or going in-house, like at a company being an in-house counsel because they didn't have those sponsors. That's how I define sponsors. And that's a little, I mean, it's it's hard to get a sponsor. I don't know like exactly what the path to that, but that's what you want to aim for, I think. Yeah. You want, you want to impress people enough with your hard work, with your discipline, with your diligence, with your can-do attitude, with your, you know, your ability to be able to go other beyond so that you create raving fans. I mean, that's sort of been right. A, yeah. a, that would be the formula that sort of pops to mind for me. That's um, a great point. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way I think about because you can't you can't make a, someone advocate for you. No, you just have to impress <laughs> them enough that they were like, oh my gosh, 
you know, you, you can't do without this person. Um, right. Make yourself indispensable. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned, I, I, I remember you saying something uh, a couple of years back that if women entrepreneurs were given the level of funding that men are given, the world would generate over a trillion dollars in added wealth to the economy. In the so, U.S., yes. In the U.S., that's mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, just I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't dispute it. it. It seems logical to me. I wonder if you have found that women are getting more funding now because of that recognition, or are we still missing out? And and what do you think can be done about it? No, we're still missing out. When I started this journey ten years ago, investing initially as an angel investor, it was about two percent of VC dollars in the United States went to women. And now it's at about 3%. So we haven't really moved the needle much. And actually, it went up to 3%. And then during COVID, it went down. And now it's back up to 3%. Again, it's like 1%, 2%. I mean, 1% difference. We're still missing a lot. And endless studies have shown that women-led companies generate a larger ROI than male-led companies. You know, first-round capital was one of the first big VC funds to put out a report. This was about, I think maybe they published it five or six years ago. They did a look back at their portfolio companies that they invested in the past decade. And the companies that had at least one founder who was a woman did six times better than teams that were all male-led. So if you take out just from a monetary business, why makes sense. If you think about just the population, you know, there are more women who are educated, who are in college, not that that's like, you know, the Holy Grail, but um, educated, they have great ideas. Women are the consumers of households at companies. They're the ones who are the buyers. If you're even just looking at like consumer products, you know, we have a pulse on what's in the market, what, what's going to sell, what's not going to sell. A lot of women are married and they ha- or they have kids and they're, they're juggling raising kids and work and all these different things. And they have to be multitaskers. The whole point of VC is you want to mitigate your risk. And so I think you know, as I said, studies have shown that women-like companies, you know, do well, but yet they're not getting funding. And so I see that as an opportunity. And so I've been investing in underrepresented founders, which are women, diverse founders, LGBTQ-like companies. I think a lot of it is just, these are people who have, have had to overcome adversity in some way. Being a woman in America, particularly if you're like in corporate America, or, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have left because they hit a glass ceiling. And so there's some level of adversity. People of color have adversity. You know, I just feel like some of those entrepreneurs are highly resourceful, don't have the luxury of once they get, if they get a check from a VC, they're probably not getting as big of a check as a male-led company would get. And so they have to be scrappy. You know, obviously not every woman or diverse founder is going to be a great founder. But to me, if you're going to make a, an investment, like those would be the type of people you want to invest in. Yeah, I, I remember, I think I read sort of a IBM global, global study that said gender equity leaders report, organizations with gender equity leaders report 19% higher revenue growth, uh, which is kind of amazing. So yeah, there's a lot to it. So let's talk a little bit about your investing process. You know, when, when you're investing, because you have this vast lens of experience, as you've just you know, enlightened us about your computer coding to law, to music, to just, just being a curious soul from what I, what I've witnessed when you consider investing in a startup beyond the business model and profitability, what, what are the elements or intangibles or characteristics you're looking for in a company or an entrepreneur? Like what, what, what inspires you to want to, um, 
jump in and, and dig into a particular investment opportunity? You know, there's an adage in VC, you bet on the jockey, not the horse. And what that means is, you know, I'm really looking at the founder, the management team, you know, the team, the founding team. When I think about the companies I've invested in, there is just something I can't, it's just, I don't know if it's gut, but there's just something that really, you know, really impressed me about that company, the whole jockey, not the horse. It's like, you can have an okay idea, but if you're a really good founder, you'll find a way to make it work. In most cases, founders have to pivot their company. I don't get so wedded on the idea. It's the team. Like, can these people execute? Are they going to break through? Well, there's going to be tons of people telling them, no, crazy idea, stupid idea. Are they not going to listen to it and just be hyper-focused and just say, I'm going to do what I need to do to make this happen? And so that's a that's like really important is just that founder and do they have the grit? Do they have the tenacity, the resilience? And then also I tell people, founders, they're selling. They're selling to their customers, potential customers. They're selling to employees, getting these people on their bandwagon to come on this crazy idea that they have and then selling to their investors. So they have to be a good salespeople. And so that's what I look for as well. And if they don't have it, they surround themselves around people who have it and they know what they know and they know what they don't know. And so what are the worst things, which I would never invest in a founder that is knows everything because there's no way that anyone can know everything and having the humility to know where they need help and being able to ask and not being so proud not to ask. And then obviously it has to be a, a good idea. Is there, is it a big market? How are they going to make money business model? At the end of the day, this is not, you know, a VC firm is not nonprofit. You yeah. need to, you know, I work hard to get investors. I want to return, get a return for my investors. And so how are they going to be able to make money and grow this business and scale it? And so either have an exit, either through an acquisition or an IPO. It's very rare that companies have an IPO. So it's a, it'll be an acquisition. So can they be acquired or, you know, have an exit? So those are things that I look for. That's cool. It feels like you've succeeded at everything you put your heart and head and soul into. No. But can you can you share a, a particular investment or business decision that didn't go as planned, and and any critical lessons that you might have learned from that? My first investment, I went through this training program, Pipeline Angels, and part of the program you you have to make an investment. And we, as my cohort, it was thirteen of us, and we made an investment. A great company. It was a CPG company that made organic non GMO baking products to the founder. She was having a baby and she was a big baker and she's like, there's crap on the market. She wants stuff that's going to be a non-GMO, organic, fair trade. You could trace where the cocoa was coming from. She was already in Whole Foods and then, you know, grew at one point. She was in Costco, is in Target and really grew the company. CPG companies or consumer packaged goods companies it's a tough haul. You're creating these products. Usually it's a net 60 day to 90 days when you get paid from a cash flow perspective. It's a tough business. You're, you know, upfronting a lot of these costs. And so she at one point was doing two million in revenue. And then she, you know, was raising more money, put her all eggs in one basket in a in a VC, and they actually pulled out the last minute. And so she had to unwind the company. So I was like, I mean, I didn't put a I was an angel. I didn't put in a lot of money. So I didn't have, you know even a board observer seat or anything like that. So I heard about it. It was already kind of too late. And so that lesson showed me, A, you want to be able to write larger checks. That was part of the reason why I started VC Fund, to be able to write larger checks. You want to definitely, you can get a board seat or get a board observer seat, just have more input. 
but that was my first investment and that was my lesson learned. But, you know, I was writing a small check, but something to be said about having writing a larger check or having more of a seat at the table. Yeah. Is there non-business related experiences or adventures that have had an influence on your approach to, to, to your learning and development in these areas? That's a good question. I think we all have a sixth sense. I think a lot of times we don't listen to it. And so I have been trying to be a lot more cognizant of, I hear this little voice in the back of my head. And sometimes in the past, I would dismiss it or just, you know, are you just busy? But I try to take time to pause and think about it. I know that sounds like woo-woo, but I think kind of just go with your gut, but also you have to do the diligence. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like, I go with my gut to some extent, but it's all about, I'm pretty thorough when it comes to due diligence and looking at the company, turning over stones and making sure this is going to be, you know, mitigate my risk as much as possible. At the end of the day, you're investing in early stage companies, which is a really risky endeavor. So you want to try to mitigate your risk. Yeah. I I heard this a long time ago by uh, Jean-Marie Aviard used to say that uh, if you think about everything go wrong, then the upside takes care of itself, you know? So it's kind of a clever clever way to think about it. But you, Mm -hmm. two last things that, uh, I mean, you've been generous, given some amazing insight is the, you know, you've had this experience as a tiger chair where you're facilitating with, you know, 18 very successful entrepreneurs, people in all different walks of life. Is there, you know, a couple things that you might have, um, what got you into it and what have you, what surprised you and what takeaways have you gotten from that experience? Cause that, that's, that must be kind of head turning at times. I imagine. When I decided, I guess this was now just over six years ago, uh, I wanted to start a VC fund cause I wanted to have more of a seat at the table, write bigger checks. I was at a big global law firm and I couldn't do that. While I was at the law firm. I said, I'm going to move on. Um, thinking about moving on and, Tiger reached out to me um, or a recruiter for Tiger and I had never heard of Tiger 21 and it was like on LinkedIn. And I'm like, is this like a hoax? Like what's this organization? So I asked my, my advisor, my uh, private wealth advisor, have you heard of Tiger 21? And he said, oh yeah, it's great. You should definitely check them out. And so now fast forward six years in, um, I have two groups and it's just been an amazing um, organization for me as a chair being able to facilitate every month and working with some of the smartest, most generous, successful people and learning from them. And just like by being an observer in the room, having a seat at the table, literally, it's been really interesting. And one of the things I've learned, a couple of things I've learned is just at some point, everyone took a risk. There was some risk taken. And so one of the things for me, you know, I'm not a risk taker, actually. I'm much more of a calculated risk taker, but I have done things in my life that I, it probably doesn't sound like it, that I'm not a risk taker because I've let, I left law firm world and I joined startups and, um, but, you know, I'm not naturally a risk taker. And so, you know, for some type big reward, you have to at some point take a risk. It should be a calculated risk. Right. And so that was one of the things I learned and leaning into your edge. Every one of the members have an edge. They have some type of expertise or something that, that they leaned into and that's how they generated their wealth. And so take a step back and think about what you're really good at and lean into that. 
And so those are like kind of the two biggest lessons that's great um, that I've learned. And from Tiger, I use those things in my you know day to day, like kind of my world as being a VC and and then also the network has been incredible, like meeting people like yourself and others who have really encouraged me. And you know, this whole I found mentors. I've actually found sponsors through Tiger. I mean, not like I was looking for it, but they yeah. people get to know me and they're impressed with me and they want to help me. And so that's been really great. Oh, well, you've been, you've been, uh, I've, I've been in awe from the day I met you. So I, I'm grateful that, like uh, that. I have, uh, you know, been able to get to know you on a deeper level and that you've spent a little time sharing some of your wisdom, uh, today. This has been awesome. I think we're kind of out of time. Unfortunately, I would love, I think we could probably go on for hours because there's so much more we could dig a lot deeper, but maybe we'll have another opportunity in the future. So thank you for uh, spending the time. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one last quick question sure. in regards to habits. Okay. The habit that you take to unwind, because you're intense, you're focused, you're, you're, like you said, you're, even though you follow your gut, you have an intuitive sense and you, and you drill into things deeper. Do you do anything to unplug for balance Absolutely. or wellness? I mean, because yeah, I I I love to cook. Like that is, if awesome. money wasn't an issue, and it's like you know, do whatever you want in life. I would be a chef, and I would travel the world. And uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain, like you know, rest in peace. But like, I would be like the female Anthony Bourdain. Like, I would love to go and travel and learn about food and cook. And yeah, so oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks again. Um, Thank you right. for having me. That was great. That was great. Okay. So subscribe free at Wisdom, Wealth, and Wellness, anywhere you get your podcasts and on YouTube. All links are in the show notes and at satofsky.com slash podcast. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.